Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy Podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. This week we're doing something a little bit different. On Sunday, May 30th, it was World MS Day, and in honor of that, We've asked our social media manager, Alexa Mina, to interview Dr. Ahmed Shatila, manager of the MS clinic at Sheikh Shakfoot Medical City. Alexa, who is from the US and a graduate of New York University, Abu Dhabi, is also living with multiple sclerosis. So who better to talk to Dr. Shatila about how to survive and thrive with MS? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Live Healthy podcast. Today, we have Dr. Ahmed Shatila joining. He is a neurologist. And a, if he's ready, I'd love for him to introduce himself to you. Thank you, Alexa, for, for the invitation. Uh, I'm a, my name is Ahmed Shatila. I'm a neurology consultant at Sheikh Shahboot Medical City in Abu Dhabi. I've been in the UAE since 2012, and I am a general neurologist who also um, has a fellowship training in neurophysiology, EEG and EMGs, but I have a special interest in multiple sclerosis. Uh, I have a, I currently uh, care for around 293 people who suffer with MS in the UAE. Well, as we know, today is World MS Day, so I think it might be helpful actually to start there. Can you tell us a little bit about what is multiple sclerosis? Uh, I think not many people know about that condition. Yes. Uh, it's one of those things, yeah, not a lot of people know, but almost everyone knows somebody who has it. It's an, interest, it's an interesting uh, way to, to think about it. Uh, multiple sclerosis, it's an autoimmune disorder. And by autoimmune, we mean it means your body attacks itself. Now, why does it do that? We're not sure why, it, why your body gets triggered to start attacking a specific part of your brain called the, the myelin. The myelin is basically the insulation of the nerves that helps the nerves transmit signals faster, effectively, and without causing problems. And for some reason, for like I said, for reasons we don't know why, the body starts to attack the myelin. And that is multiple sclerosis. So, uh, doctor, what does that look like in the day-to-day -day life of someone who has that condition? Yes. Thank you. Uh, so when you think about day to day, I mean, it all depends on how our brain, the way our brains are wired. If you think about our brains, you've got specific areas for motor function. You've got areas for vision. You've got areas for balance, which is in the back. And then you have sensation. And so I always kind of tell my patients with MS or even without MS, imagine your brain kind of like a dartboard and different areas represent different, different symptoms or different functions that you have. And in, 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 in MS, what happens is you get these plaques. These plaques are scarring that occurs by the inflammation that's going on from your body. And wherever that plaque occurs, that's going to be the symptom you have. So the plaque is the dart. It just randomly goes to a specific area. 
If it goes through your motor areas, you may have hand weakness. If you go to the balance, you may have problems with, uh, with the coordination. And so like any, like, like with darts, sometimes it's random. So where, where these lesions occur are random, but it's also random among people. That's why if some two, peop, two people with MS may not have the same symptoms, they don't progress the same way. They don't even, comp they don't even have the same trajectory. You can't tell where someone's gonna be just, you can't predict their disease because it's random, unfortunately. And doctor, is this, is this preventable for the general population? Is this something that we can uh, live healthily and avoid? It, MS is not preventable. Uh, we are still learning, we're learning more and more about why people get MS. We have ideas. There's an idea about vitamin D. And so there's been some evidence that low vitamin D may be linked to MS. There's been some studies looking at low vitamin D in utero, like when the mother's pregnant. If she had low vitamin D while she was pregnant, the odds that the child may have MS is a little higher than the general population. So there, it's not, we're not yet at the stage where I can say, if you did ABC, you can guarantee that you won't have MS or that your MS will go away. But the knowledge is rapidly increasing every day with MS, a lot more information and we're starting to understand more. So preventable now? No, hopefully in the future. Probably so. That's exciting. Yes. Uh, and actually, to that note, um, I was in a conference uh, via Cleveland Clinic this past weekend, and they mentioned that very much as clinical trials, very much in development, not yet ready for the public, but that they're okay. considering uh, an mRNA vaccine for multiple sclerosis. Uh, can you speak any more about that? You know, that's a just coincident i was just talking about that today with somebody uh so yes uh i was reading maybe i don't even maybe like a couple months ago about one or two months ago that there is a vaccine developed by the pfizer biotech company the ones that the same company that made the covid vaccine that we now know uh it's been from what i read there's not a lot there's not a lot of news about it per se and when they and from the information, it's very limited. But from what I understand, it appears to be an mRNA vaccine. It's only been tried in, in animals, in mice models of MS, I think. That's the way I understood from what, you know, you gather a little bit here and there. And it appears to be, it prevents it, but it also sometimes they would say it would treat the symptoms. So I don't know if it's a preventive vaccine or if it's one of those vaccines, if you have MS, you can, it helps you get better. It, it doesn't really clarify, but it, it does, again, it's with the same idea. Interesting times are coming in, and I think it's an exciting time to be if, if someone, if you care for people with MS or if you had MS yourself, because there's a lot of new research coming every day. And uh, to that larger point of the mRNA vaccine, talking about the other mRNA vaccine on all of our minds, uh, what are the links between COVID and neurological disorders like MS? We know that there was a moment there when they were talking about COVID as affecting our neurology because of the sense of taste and smell disappearing. Are there actually any links? Was that just one of those things that the media was throwing out into the world? You no, know, it's interesting, yeah, because 
COVID, it's it's still it's a it's a it's a really different virus in the sense that the way it the way it affects people, the way people are affected by it. No, you you can't predict who will do good or who will do bad per se sometimes with COVID. And it's it's been very different and it's been difficult for for physicians to care for these patients because not all of the patients do well. When we think about COVID and MS, there's no evidence that I know of that suggests that COVID virus will uh, cause MS. Now, whether it can make your MS worse by having a relapse, it it's possible because it's not uncommon. Sometimes people may get relapses after viral infections or after being sick. They may they could get a relapse. It's not common. I mean, I do have about ten patients who have developed COVID and they have MS and they did well. Uh, some were vaccinated, others were not, but they all did well. Alhamdulillah. And so that aspect, we, we do know that COVID does affect the CNS. Uh, it affects your sense of smell. We know that people after developing COVID, they develop the sense of mental fog or brain fog, they'll describe it. And it can be described up to six months after COVID where they just, you're forgetting things. You're not, re things aren't as clear as before. So we know that COVID does affect the brain. How does it do it? We're not quite sure. Is it just I don't know. But COVID, like I said, is a very weird virus. It's interesting to think about it in parallel to MS and because no one really talks about the neurological parts of COVID, right? We just talk about the flu aspect, how deadly it is. But I don't hear often uh, about the brain fog. There was that moment about losing your sense of uh, smell and taste. But that to me is a very normal kind of severe flu symptom right, so the yeah. brain fog is what really makes it a neurological attack almost exactly and not just brain fog some people get depression and anxiety after covid uh, there have been reports that you can get a stroke people can have strokes because so covid is definitely not just a respiratory virus it affects it affects multiple different organs some people and that's why I said why it's so weird is because some people it affects, you know, like their joints. You'll have one person say, my body just feels like someone beat me up. Other people have the brain fog. Some people just start coughing. And so it's, it affects different people differently, but it does affect the nervous system for sure. Wow. That's so interesting. And I'm surprised that there isn't more reporting on that. I think just because the respiratory, it's like, for every one, I'm just coming up with a random number. For every one neuro patient, you may have 900 respiratory patients. Mm. So the respiratory aspect of COVID is just so large, it just overshadows everything else. But the information is gathering, starting to build up, and it has built up. It's no longer theoretical. We know that COVID does do these things, and these are definitely complications. I do have one patient post-COVID, and you he came to my clinic and you look at his MRI, his MRI looks like he has MS, but he's never had a single attack. He's an interesting, he had an MRI done a couple of years prior that was completely normal. So maybe this was because of COVID, maybe it's not, it's reportable. It's just, there's a lot of questions that we don't know about how COVID affects the brain. Wow. Well, kind of bringing it to that larger question, not just MS, but neurology. 
yes. as a normal person, what can we do to protect our brain health? We all know what we should be doing to protect our heart health, right? You're supposed to maintain healthy weight, maintain a healthy diet, exercise. But what about the brain? That's a great question. I know, right? You think we, we, we focus a lot on the heart and your body and everything. Yeah, but the brain is also important, you know, right? I always I like to call it the most important electrically excitable organ in your body. <laughs> so what can you do to protect your brain? It's like the things we always hear about. You eat good, you eat healthy food, you eat right. You make sure that you've got a good intake of your fruits and your vegetables. You avoid, you try as much as you can to exercise, limit your, always limit your takeouts, your fast foods, you know, no one's against fast food, but you know, everything in moderation, right? And exercise definitely you know smoking you gotta if you smoke you should quit uh all the things that we hear like what else diet exercise and then on top of that is use your brain you know studies have studies have shown that people who have a higher what do you what's the word a higher level of education status meaning that they went to college or they graduated high school they have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease than people that aren't as educated. So the more you use your brain, the more you exercise that organ, that muscle, the better it is for, for you in the future. You know, the whole use it or lose it thing plays a role. It's interesting to me that literally everything that we know about like heart health also affects our brain, that, but also that makes caring for ourselves much easier because <laughs> I think we've all been drilled into how to be healthy in those ways, except for the using your brain, which I think, you know, we all use our brains in different ways. So can you give some examples of like, I've read Sudoku is helpful or, or those little memory games on your phone. Like yeah. what are examples of ways to use your brain besides higher education that we can do every day? Hobbies, you know, pick a, pick a, you know, develop a new skill, whether it's, you know, some people, it could be something simple, like, you know, my mom picked up recently, you know, knitting, you know, you, you just, some people, it could be cooking, it could be just extra, it doesn't have to be specific, you could just learn a new skill pick up a hobby that you could play Sudoku, I guess. I don't know if Sudoku would be just as good, but the idea is stay active, you know, do not limit yourself to, to nothing. It's, it's so better. That's how I say, uh, what else? Well, I have Any a part, part of the question. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question that I can help with that. Uh, I was once Please. told idly that when you learn something new, new synapses of your brain are firing is that what makes learning new skills and hobbies helpful? Yes, you know, you definitely every time you learn something, you're not, you see, it's the brain is so interesting in the sense that it uses different parts, like even our memory. You know, there are different types of memory. You know, we have a working memory, meaning like if I, and you use that every day, working memory would be like, say, you see a, num a phone number quickly in your phone book, and then you quickly dial it. That's working in and out fast, but you forget it the minute you dial. Then you've got you've got your semantic memory. 
language memory, you know, how you, how you put words together, how do you remember what words I'm saying means. You've also got, there's, there's a, we've got, uh, what else, memory of, you got memory of names of people, faces. So memory of skills, you know, when you learn a new skill, that's a memory. And so you have different aspects. So every time you learn a new skill, you are basically imprinting that into your brain and it's forming new synapses, new connections that become part of the structure of your brain so that when you need to recall that thing, your brain, it's, it's, it's the greatest file cabinet ever made. It knows exactly where to go, when to go and pull that specific piece of information out and you use it. That's amazing. Truly, I mean, I think about it all the time, just everything that we can store in our minds and just watching children learn is incredible, especially children that pick up multiple languages all below the ages of five. It's pretty amazing what our brains can do. Yes, it is. It's, it's a truly amazing organ. And you look at children, I have a one-year-old, I have 14-month-old son. Uh, watching him is like, you. everything is like, you always imagine like this blank slate and he's just getting all this information so fast and processing it. And he's in, he's in this new world. And how's this brain processing all that information is just so fascinating. Well, also, Dr. Quick question for you. As you yeah. mentioned that a few months ago, Live Healthy had our sleep week. It was a week mm -hmm. devoted to the importance of sleep hygiene. And there was a day where we were discussing specifically that sleeping helps our brain cement memory, cement these new synapses, cement new paths in our uh, memory. And I wondered if you can talk about the importance of sleep hygiene when it comes to our neural health. Yes, sleep actually is extremely important. There's some different aspects of sleep. First of all, there's a, uh, a theory that a theory and is I think it's been proven that during during the day your body is, is think of your think of your brain as an engine right it's working all day long well when do you clean up your engine when you turn it off at night and you sleep the brain actually cleans itself it gets there's a there's a whole recycling pathway of waste that's generated throughout the day that gets shoved out the shove down the garbage chute at night so you need to sleep sleep is important because if you're not sleeping you're not getting you're just running that motor 24 hours a day or inefficient so sleep is important in that and so you it's used for cleaning up and re, and just keeping a healthy brain or at least processing everything that done second thing memories memories are formed long term during sleep you know and that's one thing you know They've, they've done studies. If you don't sleep well, your ability to form new, it's actually, if you, if you haven't slept in 24 hours, you are legally almost the same. You'll function as if you're legally drunk. So they've done studies in women. Women who have had no sleep for more than 24 hours are as this, functionally wise, it's hard to focus as if they were legally drunk. I say women because the study was focused on women. It's not like men are better. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, like a question about that, actually. Why don't we have, in your opinion, clearly, uh, more regulation on that? There's so much regulation on, you know, driving while intoxicated or driving under the influence. But we hear about so many accidents where people are just 
sleepy or drowsy. And yeah. it's, it's so bad for our brain health, our general health, safety. <laughs> Why do you think that there isn't more regulation around that? That's a good question. Um, I think because, I don't know, maybe because we're our own worst enemies. You know, We don't sleep because we think, oh, I just have this extra little thing I need to do and I'll, I'll do it and then I'll get some sleep. Or, you know, I mean, we push ourselves. I mean, and, and a lot of people push themselves and, and unfortunately we don't think, oh, our lack of sleep is gonna cause this. I mean, if you told anybody, go to sleep, man, you know, because if you don't sleep, I promise you're gonna kill someone in a car accident tomorrow, he'd probably go to sleep. But nobody thinks that, oh, my, my what I'm doing now is going to potentially hurt someone or maybe hurt someone. Maybe, uh, I guess it's a theory. Uh, but speaking about causing harm and the, you know, the causes of lack of sleep and other unhealthy habits, let's call them. Yeah. Do you think now, I feel personally that uh, in my lifetime, I've heard about more and more neurological diseases than ever before. Is it that there are more because of our lifestyle, or is it just that we're starting to be able to better diagnose people? I think that's that's a really good question. Um, are neurologic diseases more common now than they were a hundred years ago? I think, let me think about that answer for a second. <laughs> Please do. It's something that I ask myself all the time because, you know, yeah. I had never heard of MS until I got diagnosed. And then I, you know, as I was researching it, I was like, oh, a lot of people have this, but then only in certain parts of the world. And is that because of diagnosing and education or is it because of the pattern of the disease or is it because of lifestyle <laughs> and that kind of I, down a black hole? You know, I think, well, you know, here's the thing. Like MS was diagnosed, it was mentioned by Dr. Charcot, like I think 200 years ago, if not more. So it's not a new disease. So it's not, so I think what we're, what we've able to do in the past 40 years is we've been able to diagnose these neurologic diseases better and faster with the, with the invention of CT scans, MRIs, PET scans. So it's not, I don't think the diseases are more common, but they're gonna be more prevalent because a hundred years ago, the world's population was so many, and now what, we're approaching 8 billion. So by default, we're gonna hear more, more, more of everything, not just neurologic diseases. So, I think we are, we do hear more, not because the diseases are increasing, but by the population. And we are able to diagnose these diseases earlier, you know, before maybe someone may have had, they might have said you had MS after you may have suffered from the disease for 30 years. They saw you have MS. Now we're diagnosing MS with the first attack with no disability. So, and that's a result of the technology, our ability to image people in peer into their brain and see what it looks like. And now you got the whole genetic testing as well, which is adding another layer of sophistication. So I think we've gotten better at diagnosing these diseases and picking them up and realizing what's normal and what's not. And then add that with a, a world of 8 billion people, well, 7.9 now is it? We're gonna hear more about it, All right? 
I think that is an excellent answer and really helps put things in perspective. I do forget that obviously the population size has increased exponentially. <laughs> right. But to kind of wrap this up, Dr. Shatila, what are you excited about in the, the neurological field right now? What research is driving you? What, you know, what's like the new thing that you're excited to see? Honestly, neurology is it's one of those fields where it's the rate of growth and what we know and what we're learning every day whether it's about how the brain works or the whole idea of consciousness and personalities it's it's an amazing organ i think and we're learning more and more about it but i think that one of the things that excites me the most and you know we're talking about ms so let's just stay on that the rate of growth you know i was just talking about this a couple of days ago in 2010 there were only four medicines we had our injectables and tysavri that was it and and now we have more than 16 medicines available and highly effective medicines you know that work and work really well i mean if you go to an ms clinic 20 years ago you may see half the people in the in the room in wheelchairs now you don't see that you go to the ms clinic and i sometimes challenge my pay i'm like if you can find a person with ms whatever i'll give you a piece of chocolate or something but you know they're doing so well and that that is definitely due to the, the, the medications that we have. And then I think the more exciting field in the future is the recovery, the repair. You know, not just how do we stop your disease, but now how do we give you something or what can we do to help repair what you've lost? That's what's exciting. And I think that's what the future holds. And, and it's, this isn't some distant pipe dream. This is weird. Like, this is happening now. So I think in our lifetimes, we will see something. That's extremely exciting. And uh, not to extend this further, but I do know a little bit about the research and uh, I've, I've read about, cannot pronounce it for the life of me, but Ebudilast, the- Yeah, <laughs> Ebudilast, uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, it combats brain shrinkage, which mm-hmm. you know helps guard against disability. And I know that, but this is an old rumor, the stem cell transplants that are supposed to help uh, rebuild the uh, damage to the nervous system. But I know that that research is more touch and go. The stem cell, I mean, there are, there are, when you get to the stem cell in MS, it gets a little confusing because some aspects of stem cell therapy is aimed at stopping disease. Other people may look at stem cells as try to recover or repair. Now, when you go to the first aspect of stem cell therapy, autologous stem cells, they've made some impressive research over the years where, you know, you have stem cell transplant and you can effectively stop the disease. Uh, But this is still a highly uh, toxic treatment. This is not an easy treatment. It definitely carries its risks. It has, you know, there is a possibility of death in a group of, in, in some patients and some people. And, you know, it is reserved for people who have a highly aggressive MS that's not responding or as of now until we can, it's just not practical. And then you've got the whole 
these the different, you'll sometimes get these messages or emails, oh, this center gives you stem cells and you'll get better or this. And that that's a little bit more, I tell patients, that's not yet scientifically proven. So please don't do these things because you, first of all, we don't know what you're getting. We don't, you know what I mean? When someone says you're getting stem cells, I, you know, it's not a standardized procedure. It's not like the stem cell you're getting in place A is identical to place B or the procedure. No. So I tell them, be careful about that and, and look at credentials. It's not that things are always right or wrong. It's just that always question. You should always see whoever, even if they come see me, what are my credentials? Why, why will you listen to me tell you that you should do this and not do that? I mean, I have my credentials and hopefully they believe that. And that's why they listen. My patients listen to me. They trust me. So don't, don't, I always tell my patients, don't fall for these type, type of tricks that I, that's not, because that's unscrupulous. Some unscrupulous people take advantage of people that are sick. And I, that's just my own personal, like, you know, what's the word, what do you call it? Rant on this subject. I mean, I think it's a very valid rant. I, I was just learning about this, not in the UAE, but in the US, there's a bunch of these clinics that are opening up. And I think it's actually really frightening because you're absolutely right. You have no idea what's going into your body. Also, you don't know if it's gonna work. Um, it's really expensive. <laughs> also, DMTs are pretty good these days. So why, you know, I, I understand that you have a very aggressive form, but it's still a little scary. It's a big risk. It is. It's not for everybody. And that's the thing. It's these type of like stem cell, autologous stem cell treatments, transplants are a treatment. And I think that's great that we have it. And I think it will help a certain group of people. But is it ready for prime time where every patient with MS gets it? I don't think so. No. I mean, it's just from a logistical point of view. We don't even have, there's, I don't even think there's enough Bone, bone marrow beds in the whole world uh, hold 2.8 million people. You know what I mean? It's a, so the medicines work and they work well and they're safe. And in the right hands, they can change someone's life. And it's not as scary as, as some people worry about. That's what I believe. Well, thank you so much, doctor. I think this has been very illuminating. You shared a lot of information, everything from general health in uh, how to generally keep your neurological health safe. I will definitely be trying to pick up new hobbies and kind of the in-depth analysis of MS and the future of MS, which is exciting and potential, if not cures, at least um, repairing what's been lost. And that's really exciting. Thank you so much for being a guest today. You have been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Alexa, for having me. I had, so, I had so much fun. It was great. Thank you. Well, have an excellent evening, Dr. Shatila. <laughs> you too. Good night, Masalim. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast. 